Wait a minute, I'm not ready. Ready, not ready. Oh, there's uh, in the email, there's a email that came in. I was going to answer it, but he did address it to you, I noticed. Yeah, who's it? What is it? Um, it was a guy just, just talking about stuff we had mentioned about building CO2. and Yeah. Um, basically, it's the uh, the increasing partial pressure of the CO2. But as I got going, I was like, oh, this is Brando. It's directed to Brando. I should let him see if he wants to answer it, the guy. Oh, no. August <laughs> <laughs> uh, Platinum Packs, mail copy. Used to be able to just sign into any mail I wanted. Now I got to go out and back in. Okay, you got this set up to open an app. For me to get onto it, I have to open an app on your iPad. What? That's what it says. What, to open the Gmail? So open the Jacques Yves Cousteau at Great Dive Podcast. Confirm you're not a robot by checking this box that says I'm not a robot. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a robot. <laughs> Does not I you. am not a <laughs> robot. Jesus Christ. Dude, you had... It's like getting into Fort Knox. You, you set this up. You had to set this up as a double verification. I don't have an iPad. I don't believe in iPads. That means I can't answer it, so you're going to have to answer it. Pretend you're me for a minute. See if your brain can handle it. <laughs> this is a stupid fucking question. <laughs> Pull your head out of your ass. Welcome back to the Great Time Podcast, everybody. You're here with your old pal, Jamesy. And not only is reality not a nice guy, but neither is Brando. <laughs> Wait a minute. Actually, I've been told I'm, I'm very nice. You are a very nice guy. Well, thanks, James. As long as you do what I say and don't disagree with me. <laughs> as long as the planets are aligning. Well, oh, very nice guy. Uh, you're getting in my my daughter's corner there, believing I'm an overly sensitive cancer. Cancer zodiac sign, not cancer disease. <laughs> well, Brando, where we, where we left the, last left the people, things were not good. Divers were panicking. Uh, and reality was not a nice guy, as you remember. Reality can be a bitch. And we were looking at a lot of stuff that was going on in the diving world back in 1971. Disco was just being born. <laughs> bell bottoms, <laughs> bell bottom wetsuits. You remember those? But when we were looking at, at, at as far as you know, diver training was going. They were saying back then that there is an issue with not doing enough experience diving to properly prepare divers for being out in the field on their own. And at the time, you know, this is in a, in a time when there was, you know, a day of open waters, maybe you were doing two dives. You know, they later went to doing you know, what we do today currently, four open water dives over two days is pretty regular. But back then they were saying 12, 15, 18, 20 dives is more in the wheelhouse of where I like properly that. prepared divers should be. Yeah, I like that idea. Of course, I'm a, I, I err on the safe side. You know, if, when you sign your name, you, know, you certify a diver. You, don't you feel some responsibility to the, for the safety of that diver and the people they dive with? 
to a certain degree, I mean, you train them and you're you're giving them the blessing that hey, you're you're good to go. You're locked and loaded. Go have some fun. Absolutely. I mean, I, I passionately want to feel you know the that they're going to be safe forever, not just well, do what they got to do to get a car. Forever is a long time, James. You can't guarantee people won't. I make them sign. Lose. Blood. <laughs> They're they not don't, ready to sign. They don't know who you are, do they? <laughs> the number thirteen on the bottom of your tanks is in the six six six, and in your scalp underneath your thick curly locks. Come here, yeah. <laughs> sign on the sign. <laughs> we assume, Brando, that the control diver is moving through the water with smooth, deliberate action. <laughs> And that the major sign of trouble related to apprehension and panic would be agitation. Among the indicators of agitation that appear when a diver is in difficulty is frequently checking off equipment. Agitation. Well, the way you said smooth, that just reminded me of Manscaped. It just reminded me of keeping my skin nice and smooth. Wait, wait, wait. The way I said smooth... Reminded you of my smooth balls? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Not even necessarily. Or my mind own, doesn't even. Or go your there. own smooth balls? <laughs> Neither. I'm not necessarily. You know, I don't have balls floating around up in my noggin there most of the time. But the smoothness, the smoothness aspect is definitely a word associated with our friends at Manscaped. Well, yeah, because of their skin safe ingredients that's where people the manscape platinum package comes in from razors to shower care this is the package that goes above the gold standard for your body hair so treat your beautiful boys to the world's finest toys at manscape.com use our code tgdp so you can get smooth 20 percent off and some free smooth shipping whoa Pretty smooth. You know what else is smooth, Brando? Mm-hmm. Those anti-chafing boxers are smooth. Well, if they're anti-chafing, they've got to be smooth. And if you've applied your crop preserver anti-chafing ball deodorant, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, a couple of a couple of spritzes of the old crop reviver ball spray toner. You are definitely going to have way more than a gold standard on your package. Your platinum will be packaged. Whoa. Cover all the bases from head to toe and hair all the way down to your ball fro, everybody. Get 20% (laughs) off of free shipping with the code TGDP at manscaped.com. You know TGDP for The Great Die Podcast. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code TGDP. Use the platinum package because the gold standard is no longer good enough. If you want to stay smooth, dang, Brando, I can't believe we get paid. Like if you would have said ten years ago, like how'd you like to make a couple bucks? Here's your topic. <laughs> Classic. Listen, listen, I I've, love been it. Pra- I've been practicing since I was thirteen years old for this uh, <laughs> for this believe- topic. I believe that may be absolutely true for you. Among the indicators, Brando, of agitation that appear when a diver is in difficulty is frequent checking of equipment. Another is very frequent glancing at the surface. 
Perhaps the most important sign of agitation is a change from a smooth respiratory rate to one that becomes erratic and suggests hyperventilation. The problems of hyperventilation as a cause of diving accidents is one that has been considered by such authors as Dr. Donald Prasser, who observes that drowning from hyperventilation associated with panic is likely an unrecognized and not uncommon form of death. Hyperventilation is singled out as a very important problem in diving because it is a good indicator of impending difficulty in the way of stress and potential panic. The individual can recognize in himself or his buddy significant changes in breathing rate. And a number of studies of stress have indicated that an increase in the rate of respiration along with a change in a steady pattern of respiration indicates impending stress. Impending stress versus impending doom. Well, you will be very stressed if you know that doom is impending. Well, at least the perception of impending doom, like we, uh, we've stated before and I... And the stats and the the stories and the documented cases back it up, but usually there's plenty of gas, and usually there isn't a uh, a problem per se. It's the perception of a problem. It's the it's your mind creating a picture where there's a problem, and uh, that comes from lack of confidence. That comes from uh, a little bit of uh, paranoia, which maybe a, a little too much paranoia. I mean, a little paranoia is not a bad thing. Well, we know, and especially, you know, nowadays you look at a lot of the stuff that just floods your social media, just to, like about... Dumb shit? Dumb shit. <laughs> but every now and then there's like some stuff about gaining peak human performance anymore. And one of the key things that they're going to talk to you about is being able to control your breathing and, and how the Navy SEALs use box breathing to stay calm in stressful situations. It's because of the changes in that respiration rate are going to change and alter, like what we talked about, that CO2 rate. Um, and they're going to change the, the chemistry that's going on and through your blood and into your brain. And we all know that just on the surface this has an effect, let alone when that PP, that partial pressure, is spiking because of increased depth. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's an exponential effect. I mean, it just, uh, that's what depth does. That's what pressure does. Brando, this reminds me of a question that we just got on our email from old Andy, who asked a question about how carbon dioxide is the enemy and builds up in our bodies. It is the enemy. <laughs> we must kill it. We will ask the questions here, Andy. But, but he was wondering why you can't get rid of CO2 underwater in the same way that you would if you were out of the water. You can. You do. Respiration. <laughs> right. It's, it's breathing. But you have to work harder now. And that's the vicious cycle you're talking yes. about. Especially with increased depth and increased PPO2 because it's the, it, or not PPO2, CO2. Right, PPCO2. Mm -hmm. Because the CO2 is what's driving the respiration. And if right. you can calm yourself down up on the surface, you can relax that right. urge to breathe. The problem with depth, you, you got to do it the same way, but it's harder and harder and harder. Well, because of the partial pressure, is it's increased that urge so much, not to mention the other 
side effects of hypercapnia or too much CO2 is what hypercapnia is in the tissue. The other side effects are unconsciousness. <laughs> You're going to go out, and if you go out underwater, that's bad. Up on the surface, it's just like uh, when you run. Go run a few laps, and you start breathing heavier. And it's not just CO2. It's a lactic acid as well. You're building up. But all of this stuff contributes to, to that increased respiration rate. That's why eventually, you know, runners have to stop and get catch their breath. Underwater, it increases more rapidly because it's of— It's more exacerbated. Yes, exactly. Those, those all— all of those side effects of hypercapnia, all of those consequences are ex- exaggerated because of the depth. And when I say exaggerated, I mean they come on quicker and they're harder to get rid of. You can't just, you know, stop and, well, you, you can. I shouldn't say that. You you stop, you relax, and you breathe, and you, you control your respiration and put the uh, the accent or the emphasis on exhalation. Deep inhalation and long exhalation. Get it all out. You know, you got to get rid of that right, CO2. Right. You got you to gotta calm your breathing if yeah. you're going to be able to calm your mind to be able to think and, and work through the situation, but it's it starts with your breathing. That's why building a, a quality breathing respiration rate is so important, and that's what you build at the same time your buoyancy control around. Right, so you're not working. You know, and I tell this to beginning students. I tell it to advanced students. If you are working underwater, you know, in the world of scuba, in the world of tech diving, in the world of you know, recreational side of diving, if you are working underwater, you are doing something wrong. Correct. You know, you always have to stop. And, and again, that's why we put such an emphasis on technique. Technique uses as little effort as possible. It's all smooth and flowing, and that's what, you don't do those rapid movements underwater. You know, the old, to move twice as fast in water, you have to use four times the amount of energy. Right, because of the dense medium of trying to move through the water. That alone, yeah. Three times as fast as nine times the amount of energy. It's exponential. It's squared. So you are going to build up CO2 that much quicker just trying to go twice as fast. You're going to build it up four times as quick as you would on the surface. But now throw in the added effect of the increase in the partial pressure. And you've got a snowball starting right there. You keep working harder. You keep wanting to breathe more. So you work harder. And the gas is denser, especially air. It doesn't move as easily in and out of your lungs. At 100 feet, it's four times denser than it is on the surface. So it gets, you know, I don't want to, I say syrupy only because that kind of gives you an idea of what you're you're moving. But it takes more muscles, it takes more energy, and it builds up more carbon dioxide. And that's the beginning of that vicious cycle of that snowball of doom starting. Yeah, when you're underwater, once it gets started, it's really hard unless you can stop to get rid of it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah. you just got to stop the physiological consequences of hyperventilation are not entirely agreed upon or understood but in general we believe that its frequent association with panic as demonstrated in dry land research as well as open water experiences make it a reliable indicator of stress electroencephalographic Studies EEG. have shown that what's that EEGs, EEGs. You know they they put them on your your skull and read the electrical. Read your brain waves. Yeah, the electrical waves coming yeah. off your ear, your noggin. I mean, that's what the lay people say. I, <laughs> the, the scholar that I am, I clearly pronounce it electroencephalographic. 
studies have shown that hyperventilation can result in pathological EEG changes in normal adults. Many reports of psychological symptoms such as weakness, tingling, and impaired vision have been found with hyperventilation. The U.S. Navy Diving Manual states that hyperventilation can induce severe hypocapnia, muscular spasms, loss of consciousness, and shock may be the end result. With loss of consciousness, the drowning that Prasser associates with hyperventilation may occur. That that right there should... uh should suffice to answer Andy's question, <laughs> I think, at least per, uh, put a put a little bow on what we said. Yeah, the, the heavy, the fast, heavy, uncontrollable breathing, the buildup of CO2 leading to a loss of consciousness. You know, if you're running around the track, you sit down and drink your uh, drink your water and, and, and catch your breath underwater. You drown. you drown. Yes. The consequences not... are <laughs> a little different. Right. So, yeah. And, and again, underwater, it, the cycle feeds itself uh, more readily because you, you work harder, which builds more CO2, which makes you want to work harder to get rid of it. And the whole... The whole little stick in the spokes there to stop that cycle would be just stop just stop stop moving stop working and and breathe right and learning to control your buoyancy to a point where you can stay perfectly still Mm -hmm. and not do anything although it it seems like it makes perfect sense in reality as we know from teaching classes like the essentials it's the hardest thing you can ask someone to do even even a lot of divers with many many years of experience, their their basis for good buoyancy control is held with the caveat: well, as long as I keep swimming, yes, I've as long as it. I got my fin sculling or my hand sculling a little bit, I'm I'm golden. But yeah, another breathing problem, a serious one in divers, Brando, is the risk of air embolism. A diver in panic who is ascending, holding his breath, is in marked danger of embolizing. We believe that one of the important skills to be developed in diving courses is the effective use of controlled emergency ascent so that the diver in trouble exhales properly. In a panic situation, it is likely that the inexperienced diver will hold his breath with serious consequences. Now, this, in my opinion, I understand it, but it's a little bit dated. Right? I mean, for because for the longest time, and unfortunately, I would say even still today, there's still a stronghold of problem underwater equates shoot to the surface. Yeah. Well, it which, was instilled uh, in you in Open Water 101. And it, it's been that way for so long. And, and again, this is where I've held for, for many years now, and there's many episodes where we've talked that this is, a, in my opinion, a changing of the guard in scuba of, you know, we've been on this educational path of we can solve our problems underwater if we go into the water with the right mindset. And in the olden days, it was take human beings underwater, throw scuba gear at them, and know that if the shit really hits the fan, ditch weights, shoot to the surface, say, ah, and uh, hopefully you get there 
and then we'll take you to the hospital and deal with all the consequences, but at least you're alive. But you and I have been trying or to teach, teach for, a, for a long time now <laughs> yeah. of, well, well, if we do the right planning ahead of time and you've got the right equipment ahead of time and you've built the experience and you have the team in the water, you can solve your problems underwater. Yeah. And not have to do the Hail Mary Led Zeppelin shot yeah. to the surface. I mean, that should be the last of a last of a last of a last of a last because everything that you've tried to do has already gone wrong. Not because you've had one problem, let's bail to let's the surface. Let's bolt, yeah. And, the, and I think the argument back would say that's not what we teach. But, but to a certain degree you do because there's so many options in that, in the open water 101 where you, you just fly to the surface. Like you're, you're going to have this... Um, catastrophic out of gas issue and you're not going to be able to get to your partner and this is all i have to believe i mean i can't see any other reason for it but it's all fueled by lawyers looking at the course and not wanting any liability uh should they find you know people dead uh if they're able to say well we taught them they could always just blow their weight belt off and go to the surface they shouldn't have drowned underwater well, if if you have a loss of mental capacity, yeah, something as simple as dropping a weight belt is a highly complex, you know, highly complex task. It can be, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you watch them fumbling around, you know, especially it's something that they, nobody practices after open water. No, you know, just like gas sharing, nobody right. really practices it or I mask mean, clearing only if they have mask to. Mask clearing. I mean, how how difficult is mask clearing? It's the one of the easiest things you can do. But when you're stressed, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, just like everything. So that stuff has to be taught to the point where it's it's overlearned and it's natural instinct. It it happens without thinking about it. Really, you do it without thinking. Stress can seriously alter our problem solving capability during emergencies. Part of the problem may be related to a phenomenon known as peripheral narrowing. The individual under stress becomes increasingly less aware of the periphery and focuses upon the immediate problem solution, even though it may be a poor solution. Yeah, that narrowing of focus, you see that quite a bit. Uh, and, and that's one of the things you try to teach out of a student, you know, the uh, that that laser-like focus that happens when anything goes wrong. An example, he says, might be the diver who, while working in the rocks, has had his J-valve pushed down, thus rendering it inoperative. <laughs> uh, so for the kids out there, you know, the J-valve was something in the 70s we used instead of pressure gauges. Yeah. You know, that as, a, as a gas reserve. It was pre-pressure um, gauge, yeah. Yeah. But if he then drew a last hard breath and put his thumb into the pull handle, he would pull and get no relief. In a state of high stress or panic, he might continue to pull futilely on the rod. <laughs> and pull it off. Until he lost consciousness. Right? But, but like, how simple is pulling a rod? I mean, it's this yeah. basic, and that was the theory back then: is we need a reserve parachute for the diver. Let's right. let's put a spring-loaded reserve in there so that when we run out of gas, we know I can pull this. And I got five hundred. And that was it. I got to go. That was you know yeah. the the clear identifier. But if it already got knocked or it was 
forgotten to even get started. Something as simple as pulling it, you would tell in a classroom, well, if you pull your J-Rod, but you find that it's already pulled, it's time to you go, would baby. realize that you have to, <laughs> you know, immediately say the ah sound mm. and do a controlled emergency swimming ascent. That's yeah. simple. But what they're saying here is what often happens is that freaks somebody out so much, puts them into a sense of panic, and, and here he's going to die underwater and drown because he's futilely just pulling the yeah. J-Rod harder and harder and harder when there's nowhere for it to go because it's already been pulled. It's a wee bit of the cognitive dissonance where you're like, there's no fucking way that my J-Valve is already pulled. You refuse to believe it even though it's true. And the evidence is right in front of your face. So you just continue to pull that J-valve, and there's nothing to be pulled. So they, and, and again, to add on to that, that the J-valve used to be, you know, you started the dive with it up. When it became difficult to breathe, you would pull your little lever on the back of your tank, and it would give you access to another about 500 PSI or so of gas, enough to leave and comfortably go to the surface. But a lot of times the fault of those was that they were accidentally pulled during the dive or a lot of people didn't even check and it was already down when they began the dive. So they went to pull it and there's nothing there. You didn't have a pressure gauge. You just went by feel the difficulty and increased difficulty in drawing a breath. So yeah, again, like I say, well, that's a a cognitive dissonance, you know, is I refuse to believe what's going on is actually going on. Right. But again, this is the problem with scuba diving is when you're on land walking around, you can refuse to believe that there's a train (laughs) coming down the tracks right as you're trying to cross the tracks. Right. Right? You can sit there and contemplate it. But the facts don't care about your beliefs. The facts Underwater, there's a lot more other things that are happening around you with physics and physiology that are taking place because we're at depth. Yeah. So when you increase your breathing rate, you increase the CO2 in your blood, and if you're working, you're just going to increase that exponentially. It's going to be worse and worse by the second. Several years ago, a young woman in Tucson died while diving for golf balls in a dark 12-foot water trap. She was enrolled in a diving course but lacked experience. She was reported to have surfaced, apparently in panic, and drowned. When her body was recovered, not only was she still wearing her weight belt, but she tightly clutched a heavy bag of golf golf balls. You know what I just went through to get these goddamn golf balls? That's 12 feet of water. Do you know how much a Titleist (laughs) Pro-V sells for on the black market of Craigslist? Craigslist was not around back then. (laughs) Internet was not, not available. But Brando, uh, you know, old Glenn Eggstrom, who, who wrote this uh, uh, piece, says that at this point we may further conjecture about the reasons that divers in trouble do not drop their weight belts or inflate their personal flotation vests. Given the observation that panic divers hit the surface and char- and characteristically claw at the water in an upward-oriented drive, it is possible that this upward striving to get above the water is antagonistic to the motions of placing the hands into the water to release the belt or pop the cartridge to inflate the vest. Perhaps some human engineering analysis of the placement of these vital safety factors should be considered. I think they should. Perhaps he's right. <laughs> perhaps he is right. 
But again, it it goes to when you're in panic. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you were taught. Because you're not going to go through that thought process because you're not in the same mindset place of when you were sitting in a classroom going through the quiz, which of these is right? Swim as fast as possible to the surface, holding your breath, A. Mm -hmm. Uh, B, claw at the surface, trying to get higher in the water, you know, or C, stop, breathe, think, act, or D, all, right? You're not in the same mind place to make that decision. Like, you are fighting for for your life, right? So even if we re-engineered the equipment, so that the inflator was way easier to find, right? Or the weights were way easier to drop, which they have over the last 50 years of of equipment since writing this article. But that doesn't change the fact that people still hit the surface and panic and claw their way at the surface. Like anybody who's taken a rescue class dealing with mm-hmm. panic divers at the surface, you know, this is the issue that, that they're facing is they're looking to get as high out of the water as they can. They're trying to gain some buoyancy. Yeah. It's so easy to say, well, drop your weights. It's so easy to say, inflate your BCD. But in the moment, they don't hear that. They can't see that. They can't think that. I used to see it in advanced classes as you go up and down during your your training dives. I do not like to see you working. So if you're kicking at all on the surface, you're working. So get in that habit. So it's it's just an instinct. You get to the surface, you inflate your wing or your BCD. Get in that habit. It just becomes second nature. But you see it so often. Oh, yeah. Advanced students who are like that. They're, their head's barely above water, and they're kicking, and we're trying to have a little conversation. And uh, it's difficult when, when you see they're out of breath, and they've got to really work hard to keep their ears out of the water to hear. So it's something, I think it goes right back to the original hypothesis that there's not enough training going on. There's not enough training, exactly. And that's where I'm going. Like, mm-hmm. human engineer the perfect inflator all you want. Human yeah, engineer the right. perfect dumping weight system all you want you're still going to have this issue when you have divers with virtually zero real experience that run into a problem at some point down the road and when you make the class so goddamn short it's very difficult to really teach someone well in a short time it's not you know impossible but it's difficult and to turn out the number of divers that have been turned out uh, a good majority of them are going to have issues and and I, this is yeah. I was just going to yeah. say, just a caveat on that as well, or just a piggyback on that. And when they have issues and they're not comfortable, guess what they do with their dive gear? They sell it. Go, they right, get rid yeah. of it. it eBay goes, goes right down to the basement next to that treadmill. Yeah, they quit diving, and we have the biggest number of people that come into diving, learn it, and then leave. I have to believe the industry bigwigs got cognitive dissonance. Don't want to believe it, but at the root of it is. People are getting certified and they're not comfortable. And so they just say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go out and have a not comfortable, fun time. And coming back from a dive, wiping the sweat off your brow with a few I lived comment is is not fun. That's not how it's supposed to go. I'm not done. Well, well, I, think, <laughs> well I think that's what, uh, you know, these guys, this, you know, diving safety officer and this uh, naval medical researcher were trying to say when they wrote this article. And Skin Diver magazine published it back in 1971 is what they were trying to say. Another relative study is of the Fens and Epstein on skydivers. 
and their research on experienced and novice skydivers, it was found that the peak of apprehension and anxiety differed in the two groups. The experienced skydiver, if he felt apprehension at all, would experience it early in the morning. And if it was strong enough, he would cancel the jump. The novice skydiver did not reach his peak of anxiety until he reached the site of the jump. It's ignorance. Experience is knowledge. Experience gives you that that foresight. They can recognize it early. The experienced one is like right off the get-go, uh, something's not right. Because of the experience. But when you when you don't have any experience, you just go through the motions of, okay, until it's too late, and then you're in, and then you're in it because you don't have the experience. Your mind is so full of all the little stuff. You don't have the, the brain capacity to see the big picture of this is not a good time to be jumping. Yeah, it's not even a compa- You lack Right, the, you're so focused on, yeah. did I put my parachute on? Well, it, that and a million other things going through your head yeah. because that's how it is when you're new at almost anything. And that is why you need to gain more experience before the the cord is cut, per se, by the instructor or or certifying agency. And that's what they're saying here. Another study of experienced skydivers using telemetry to measure physiological data found that experienced skydivers had a marked increase in pulse rate as they approached the jump site. At jump time, pulse rates have been measured as high as 200 to 220. These are interesting findings. It is possible that the lower anxiety found in the one study was a verbalized lack of apprehension. It is also probable that the increased pulse rate can be a mobilization response. The test pilot, Scott Crossfield, was reported to have markedly increased pulse rates just before his X-15 took off. And champion swimmers often peak high pulse rates prior to a meet. While we need to know much more about stress responses, it is important to differentiate anxiety from appropriate stress mobility for action. And that might be difficult to do and probably take a long time, a lot of studies. But, yeah, you know, some people... There's a lot of physiological things happening in a normal human body, let alone when you throw oh, yeah. fear and panic and anxiety and, and stress. We start talking. I mean, now we're getting into the psychological aspects of, of any activity, you know, like scuba diving or skydiving or anything where you, it, it can be a little adrenaline uh, push. There can be a little adrenaline rush, especially in the novice. I mean, the experienced people they lose that psychological precursor to the actual event. They, they've they done it so many times, they already have gone through it in their head, and you don't see that increase in pulse rate, or rarely see it, right? Or increase in respiration prior to the activity without any you know provocation. But well, that's generally, I would say, because <clears throat> there is a little bit of a spike from time to time, but it's dealt with rationality because you've got the experience right. to work through mm-hmm. it, right? Here I'm getting ready to do this big dive. Like, yeah, yeah, there's going to be yeah. some little butterflies, but the butterflies don't lead to a, a, a increase in breathing, uh, a, a tension, a, a, a knot in your shoulders and neck. Yeah, uh, it 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 leads to a a comfortable fear that results in a mental clarity about what you're about to do. Right. 
More you know, it's a, yeah. a way of your body telling you to, hey, get your shit together. This is for real. Right. It probably increases your effectiveness and safety. That, and that little extra I think that's what he's saying bit. there. When you look at the, the pros, the, the, the change in their breathing is happening for a different reason. Exactly. Than the novice. Yeah. And he relates it to divers. He says, while there is no evidence of this from a research standpoint, it is tempting to relate this to the experienced and novice scuba diver. For example... It is possible that the experienced scuba diver, if he has any apprehension, will have it earlier, while the novice diver will not reach his peak until he is on the boat, nearing the dive site for the dive. Or I would, would even add, like, underwater, Water. like, mm-hmm. in the moment, because he doesn't want to look like, you know, the, the, the nervous guy, so he's going to get in and go through it anyway, and then he gets down at depth and realizes, I never should be here. I should never be here. Yeah. I never should have been here. Son of a bitch. It would certainly seem worthwhile to have the diving instructor and other divers monitoring each other for signs of apprehension as they approach the dive site. One way of expressing apprehension is a face-saving fashion is to find some reason for avoiding the dive. My bra's too tight. (laughs) I should have wore my anti-chafing. <laughs> I forgot my crop preserver. <laughs> if I'm not back from my manscaping, people just do the dive without me. The anxious diver who, because of social pressure, as he perceives it, cannot express his apprehension about going into the water may indicate he is seasick or is suffering from a severe sinus headache. Such events can be excuses for avoiding the anxiety-producing task By the diver who may not be fully aware of his own complex behaviors, the dive instructor should be aware and alert to these possibilities. Should be. Should be. That's one of the things, you know, that, you know, once you've gone through some higher level training like your rescue class or you get into the dive mastering or instructoring, this is why we we keep saying that you need to have a lot of diving experience under your belt to have been on a number of dive boats, many different dive locations, seen people get in the water and out of the water in different ways from different styles of entry, mm-hmm. different styles of exit, different water conditions, clear water, cold water, moving water, choppy water, surfy water, calm because what you experience from the divers in the water around you is what's building that experience for you as a professional to pick up on these little cues of this diver is going to be a problem in about 10 minutes yeah the yapping diver you forgot about that yapping goddamn diver that diver that talks way too much is a dead giveaway the one that you know their entire dive resume in the first five minutes of meeting them and and it's incredible it's an incredible yes. array of nonsense but no, you're absolutely right. And there's no way in 100 dives you'll get that. And the thing about becoming an instructor in that fashion is you're an instructor anywhere you go now. You're not, you know, because the argument is, well, he's teaching in the Caribbean or she's teaching in the Caribbean. And that's where all their experience is. They're good to go. They're locked. Well, but they're not certified in just the Caribbean to be an instructor. They can be an instructor anywhere. And I would even argue it, it still doesn't matter. 100 dives in the Caribbean is not enough to be teaching anyone and certifying anyone safely to dive. It's just not enough. Well, it, it, it's I with the caveat of if you just gave them the truth, 
right off the bat. You can't handle the truth. (laughs) They can't. That's the problem. (laughs) Right? I mean, they're they're certified to dive in 30 feet of water, like on a cruise trip vacation with a dive master uh, in front and a dive master in back and a dive master on the surface. That's a dive master orgy. Sure. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'll give you that. That's not where they go is they want to come back to, you know, back home and get on another just any dive boat thinking that they're certified they're good to go anywhere yeah well you're you're exactly right and that score that that scenario of a scorgy of dive masters <laughs> it's probably a great time in grand Cayman. a dive master in front a dive master in back dive masters to the side Listen, to be to be 25 again <laughs> Brando, this brings up a very important aspect of picking up signs of trouble in oneself or in other divers. It is important that divers be convinced that it is much safer and more mature to express apprehension or fatigue than to try and dive under potentially hazardous physiological or psychological conditions. This relates to the previous statement that the diver who is competitive who has to prove his masculinity by taking chances, is a diver who is potentially hazard to himself and his buddy. A climate in which people can express problems and find means of working them out makes a much safer and more enjoyable dive. Well, no kidding. (laughs) I was going to say the sky's blue. Yeah, well, it makes sense. But when class is a weekend and the dives are tomorrow, it doesn't lend itself for an environment for someone to really say, uh, I'm not comfortable doing the dive. You know, the dive master, the, the dive instructor goes, yeah, yeah, you cleared your mask once in the pool. You're ready. Let's go. Right. But, I mean, the standards are the standards. They say it's okay. And you, what are you going to do? What's the option, James? I need, I want some uh, advice here. The way I see the option is in a in a perfect world, which I get. It's mm-hmm. difficult to do, right? I'm not saying that this is how you fix it because it, it, it would uproot the entire scuba diving industry. I don't see how it's going to happen when the, the so many dive potential dive student divers have been conditioned to know that scuba class is 200 bucks and it's a weekend and, you know, but the... the the way you do it is you have a diving school that you attend for weeks and weeks and weeks or months and months and months, and you just slowly build comfort in one environment and slowly move into another environment, and you prove yourself in those environments. Right. And when the instructor goes, man, you are more than capable of handling yourself here. Here's your certification for 60 feet of water. You know, uh, Quit thinking you have to do it under supervision. You're ready to, to be a real diver. Yeah. You know, but that's a totally different model, than what which we have, yeah. I don't know if it's possible of working or not, but it seems like a way smarter program if your goal was really to be a competent, comfortable, confident, experienced diver versus somebody who took a class as quick as possible because we wanted to do a couple dives when we were down in the Bahamas. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the other side of that is if you – you're going to one of those tropical locations, and and you and it's understood by everyone involved. You you are to dive with an instructor, under the very close supervision of an instructor, and uh, thirty feet or less. 
I guess that's not. I mean, we talk about this all the time because that's the real certification you're getting. Right. I mean, I mean, you wouldn't walk into a martial arts school, take a weekend class on punches and kicks, and go to and the then, bar. Uh, then uh, the next weekend do a test on seeing if you could still do that same kick and still do that same punch, and then the instructor tell you, all right, go out on the street and get in a fight. <laughs> go to the bar and open your big-ass mouth. <laughs> right, you're going to get your ass kicked. I know karate. Wait, that's not how my instructor threw a punch. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Whoa, you whoa, it's have supposed to, to be a sidekick. Come at me from the right side. <laughs> exactly. Well, you, you're not, your buddy's not supposed to hit me over uh, the head with a chair mm-hmm. from behind. What are you doing? And you can't just grab me at the waist and throw me on the ground and start kicking the shit out of me. <laughs> we didn't do chokeholds. Wait, we didn't do chokeholds. Stop. Exactly. But, I mean, if you're going to learn to fight, you're going to be in a... a a school that's on a long game approach. And if you're going to learn music, you're going to go to a, a school, you're going to do training that's the long game approach. Right. If you're going to really learn to do anything, you're going to slowly practice and practice and practice and practice and practice before you're out on game day. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, this is symptomatic of the entire fucking planet to a certain degree they want it now they don't want to put a lot of work into it and they want to do it now right and it's only getting worse i agree with you oh yeah i sound like an old guy but i mean really and i i've told the kids that you know that's why i wanted them in athletics because it is one way that you learn to perfect something over a long period of time and you you can actually see the results from day 1 to you know 15 20 years later of doing something where everything is very so much different and and you can look back and go yeah the it was worth all the work cuz i i do this i do this thing now i have this thing that i can do well i mean we go we can go full circle back to things right. that we talk I'm, about the flow and the feeling of that you get when you're underwater di- having dived for 35 years and when you have those dives where it just flows through you it's an amazing thing it's amazing right when it feels good everything's feeling good and that's what you're aiming for and you can't get that off the bat and you should tell people that but you can you can work towards that and it just takes time and, and in that journey you can really enjoy the journey still and you'll have those moments right I, which i i don't know understand why more people like are like us telling people that, why aren't more that, people that, like us that, james exactly <laughs> like like you could like you don't have to have this in a weekend don't expect to have this in a weekend you know don't i mean don't look at me and my buoyancy control and, and wonder like why you haven't got it yet it, it, after two days of training right it's well i've been working on this for 30 plus years of, of course it's going to be a little bit different you know, we're not. <laughs> you dumbass. Right. You, you forgot to add that those two words on the end of it, because yeah, the insult level of that is off the charts. To close out this story, this paper on diver panic, he says, in this brief discussion of diver apprehension and panic, we have emphasized the training of the diver as a means of developing sufficient control and self confidence in one's own ability to reduce the possibility of panic. That it will occur is undoubtedly true. We have also touched briefly upon some early signs of recognizing trouble in oneself and in others. 
There is no systematic research on this extremely important problem, and we would strongly recommend that in the interest of diver safety, more consideration be given to the problem of panic. That was 1971. Saying that classes need to be longer, the experience building post-class needs to be grossly longer. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And over the last 50 years, it's gone the things opposite. have been, uh, gone in the exact opposite yeah. way. Quicker, 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 faster, faster, faster. Uh, let the equipment do everything for you. Let's improve the equipment is where they went instead of improving the diver. And I'm going to just, you know, you know, thankfully say that, uh, you know, I ran into the right group of people yeah. in my training to do the opposite of, you know, you and myself, you know, we've been on the goal of let's improve the diver rather than just throw equipment. Throw, <laughs> throw equipment and handshakes and pats on the back and yays, uh, high fives underwater at them. You know, the thing is, too, like if you brought this up to an industry leader, whatever industry bigwig in the mainstream industry, everything you just said he brought up, they would argue back, I have to believe. As a matter of fact, I know they would. So the industry, the industry bigwig would argue like the stats don't support your guys's conclusion because stats say we become even safer. You know, and the stats are arrived at by number of divers. Uh, that's your total pool, and then the number of incidents that are reported. That's one of the main stats, but it does not take into account the the number of incidents not reported, which are vastly outnumbering the number of incidents reported. The near right. misses are insane out there. The number also doesn't take into account the number of people that, you know, yeah, you've got all these people certified. And then they hung it up. They hung it up. The, the people that are diving is a fraction of the number of people certified. So when you when you take I got certified into- <laughs> 35 years exactly. ago. I've never had a single diving accident. <laughs> I only did two dives 35 years ago. I still carry my C card in my wallet, though, for 35 right. years, 34 of which I haven't done any diving. I, I look like a gem of a statistic. Well, yeah, and and that's a huge part of those statistics. So if you took the real numbers, the ones I just talked about, that record is piss poor. Well, and the other problem with it that I see is, you know, everybody, every instructor, every dive shop, you know, out there for the last 40, 50 plus years has been sold this idea that train get them in the door, train them as easy, as cheap as possible. The money is made by selling them gear. Well, And, and, it, and they've, yeah. all, they've all been brainwashed in, into that is, is the only way you're going to make money in this industry is by selling equipment. To the masses. Yeah. Yes, to the versus, masses. Versus, like, you don't make money on, on instruction. Just no. ignore it's it. A loss Do it leader. as cheap as you can. Mm-hmm. It's a loss leader. Get them in the door. Then you can get your hooks really into them and, and sell them gear. But man, it, it's look where it's gotten us. You know, it's gotten us to the point where you know, I'm doing what I do, which is the opposite. Is no, we're going to focus on training. Yeah, it, it's quantity over quality that that destroys almost anything. I mean, when you throw quality out out as a factor, <laughs> you're going to turn out shit. You're going to turn out shit quality and, and lots of it because you've made quantity your fucking measure of success. And that's why you have these silly ass, you know, awards 
for teaching a thousand divers, you know, and people are doing that in two months or I'm exaggerating a bit, but you get an award for teaching more divers in quicker time. Like that's nothing to pat yourself on the back about. Right. I would like to see an award for how many divers I've taught that have stayed active and have done over a hundred dives a year for the last five years or more. That's a great award. That's an award to receive. That's a fucking award right there. That would be a, an award to be proud of as an instructor. Like, you've brought Ab- good divers, enthusiastic, comfortable, confident divers into the world. Not just that I made 50 new divers that yeah. don't belong in our industry. Right. Right, because they're uncomfortable, because they're afraid to be there. No, how about you put 50 divers in that are diving actively, they're a part of the community, they've gone and traveled to different parts of the world, uh, did business with multiple dive shops and dive boats and have built a, a, a repertoire of experience and diving under their belt and have done it consistently. Five years later, let's revisit those numbers. Like Not it. you certified 500 people over five years, two of them still dive. I mean, that's <laughs> the reality. Yeah. Two of them are left. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's not nice. No, it, well, you, that, hey, I, you know what, Brando? What? Reality. Reality's not nice. Reality's Reality is not a bitch. nice guy. Remember? Sometimes I do remember. I remember that quote, unquote. And it's it's kind of true. I mean, it is... Niceness has nothing to do with reality. Awesomeness, excitement, and, and work. reality is work. I mean, that's and work isn't bad. I mean, people, we've got this thing like work is bad. I don't know about it, you. I can speak for myself. It takes work to get good at it. Yeah, and you know it. You and should you, be proud of that. And you love it, though. You Don't you love, like, digging into something, like, uh, that you love doing? Like, the dives we just did at Isle Royal. Fucking a lot of goddamn work to get to it, get going. It makes- are you kidding me? It's thirty. <laughs> it's thirty plus years of work to, yeah, yeah. you know, all comes uh-huh. to fruition on those dives. Absolutely. I mean, if you want, if you passionately want to learn how to play the guitar, you're gonna deal with cramped, sore, calloused, bloody fingers for a while. But I can get an AI program online and just fucking make the same music with the push of a mouse click. You dumbass. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anything, anything that you want to learn how to do, it's going to take work, and it's there's going to be a struggle to get there if you want to do it well. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's one of the fucking caveats of life. It's the basis of life on this planet. You you have to work, and it builds your character, builds you as a human being, and it makes you, uh, it gives you the gift of having that skill under your belt that will allow you those moments of flow, those moments of just glorious, I don't know what the word is to describe it, but when you have it, you know it, and you're like, this was all worth it. Boom, this is, this is it. That's the magic of the moment, absolutely. Right? That's what art is. Boom. Make your diving an art, people. Play the long game with your diving. Don't worry about this weekend C card. Play the long game. Yeah. Brando, should we sign some log books on this long game? Let's uh, sign these damn log books because this was, uh, it was a long dive. Brando. Harping we, on the same thing we harp on. Brando, reality is not 
a nice guy. <laughs> but you, sir, are a very nice guy and Dang. very nice dive buddy. Thank you for this two-part you, dive. That brings a tear to my eye. Thank you. Thank. I don't even know how I can. I can't. See, you get the first sign in. I can't leave them with something better than that. And I, I'm just going to write James Ditto. Ditto. All right, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Damn Skippy. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando.